from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler, the largest architecture firm in the world. We don't have stars, we have ideas, and we have a very open platform. Today, we need to solve problems that have not been solved before. And we have to be innovative, which means we need everybody's ideas on board. Diane Hoskins went from the drafting room all the way to the top of the boardroom. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The architecture giant Gensler is one of the most unusual companies in the world. For starters, it has two CEOs. The staff is spread across 50 offices around the world. And the company kind of pioneered virtual work long before the rest of the world learned how to work remotely. Gensler is headquartered in San Francisco, but its executive team is spread around the U.S. Andy Cohen, the CEO, is based in Los Angeles. The other CEO, Diane Hoskins, is based in Washington, D.C. And together, they've created a unique leadership model, a model where hierarchies don't really matter and where internal collaboration, not internal competition, is rewarded. For as long as Diane can remember, she wanted to be an architect, never with the intention of running a huge company. But since her appointment as co-CEO in 2005, she and Andy Cohen have turned Gensler into the largest architectural firm in the world. Diane grew up in Chicago in the 1960s. She was one of five kids in an interracial household at a time when interracial marriages were still illegal in 15 U.S. states. You know, my mom is white. Her parents were Danish immigrants. And my dad, who has, you know, passed away, but he was black and born in Virginia. And uh, believe it or not, they were married in the 1950s in a very segregated America. Um, but, you know, there was no segregation at our house. You know, five mixed race kids, our mixed marriage parents and our Danish grandparents um, all lived in the house wow. together. Uh, you know, it was diversity and inclusion 101 every day. <laughs> so so just a massive number of people in your house. Like it sounds like it was... It was lively, maybe never, never quiet. 
Yeah, I think, you know, thinking back, it was, you know, pretty lively. I guess most people back then had big families, but it was kind of extra big because we had my grandparents also with us who brought, you know, the kind of perspective of of people who were born in another country, but also mm. um, of a totally different generation. Yeah. So did you grow up speaking Danish? No, we just had, we would have little phrases that we would say, of course, you know, talk for ma, well for come when we would leave the dinner table or, you know, other different foods that, you know, my grandmother was kind of the cook of the house. Hmm. My mom worked. And uh, so there were different meals that, you know, danspoof and other types of um, dishes. Um, but of course, you know, because the Danes really love uh, sort of the Christmas rituals, um, a lot of our, our Christmas traditions, you know, kind of wrapped around that, that cultural pattern. And where in Chicago were, where did you grow up? Yeah, we grew up on the south side of Chicago um, during a lot of those transitional years. So it was just a very dynamic time. And, you know, a time where, uh, you know, there was just so much going on in terms of our country and uh, what was happening with race relations and all of those sorts of things, which, you know, for us was kind of, you know, outside of the house in many ways. And, you know, you kind of had to learn about what other folks were experiencing because, you know, we really learned some very different ways of interacting, you know, and seeing each other for who we were and, you know, valuing uniqueness and individuality and the specialness of each person. Yeah. I mean, there's something um, almost poetic to, to, to the to the idea that you became an architect and you grew up in Chicago because right there, if you think about the great architectural cities in the world, Chicago would be right at or near the top of that list. I mean, every time I go there, I just, I'm in, I'm in awe. It's just incredible, the skyline and, and all the buildings. Did you, were you aware of that as a kid? Were you conscious of that? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of my family's favorite things to do is to take a ride downtown and, um, you know, experience the skyline. And uh, my mom, actually, she worked for McGraw-Hill, and which is the company that published um, Architectural Record magazine and other construction magazines, which she would bring home and also fueled my interest. Yeah, I, I really do believe that, that growing up in Chicago was, was a big influence. You know, I frankly can't remember not wanting to be an architect wow. as a kid. Really? Yeah, it was kind of always there, um, you know, way back, even as a very little kid. I was kind of drawn to building things with Legos and, and even bricks, you know, in the neighborhood and that sort of thing. Um, I remember even building a model of our house out of Legos as a kid, you know, it was kind of like... This is before Lego even had their architecture sets. That's right. They weren't like pre-making stuff for me. I had to kind of come up with it on my yeah. own, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, now yeah. you can do like falling water and and the the, Do the towers in Doha, yeah. Empire State Building. Yeah. Even you know we designed Shanghai Tower. Shanghai Tower. Now they yeah. have a they have a Lego set for Shanghai Tower wow. as well. Wow. So you you follow this dream and you go to MIT to study architecture. So clearly you knew what. I mean, you were one of these rare people. You knew what you wanted to do from a young age. 
Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I attended MIT um, because it was rated as the top school of architecture in the United States at that time. And it was also ranked w- one of the most competitive, uh, you know, schools in the country as well. And I think both of those things really appealed to me. I really enjoyed setting a bar really high. But it was, you know, an incredible experience. And uh, I really learned how to, um, I would say, kind of strip down a goal to its essential parts and then really lean in to make it happen. And I I would say in, in many ways, I learned how to own my own destiny through the skills that I learned through that experience. So you graduate and and presumably the first thing you do is is you decide to become an architect and was that I mean did you sort of see that as your what you were going to do with your life you were going to join a firm and then just start designing buildings and that's what you would do exactly <laughs> yeah so you know after graduating i went to work for som uh, which is uh, it was the firm that designed the Sears Tower mm. and of course the John Hancock Building, both of those in Chicago. Um, you know, it wasn't an easy place to work by by any means. You know, very fast paced, very competitive environment. Uh, the clients were top developers. You know, around the country, around the world. And I was in a studio of about 50 people. Um, You know, I was fortunate to be in the studio of of a woman, and she was actually the only woman partner in the firm at that time. And I I really learned a lot from her. Um, You know, she was incredibly creative, very hands-on, incredibly hardworking. But also, when we'd be working after hours, and she would stay after hours with the rest of us, um, she was just a real person. And I guess I really learned so much from her about just being a, a transparent leader and not having to kind of wear leadership as a personality, but, um, you know, to be a leader through authenticity and, and holding yourself to that same standard mm-hmm. that you hold other people to. So you spend, I think, about um, three about three years there, and then you go off to, to do an MBA. And and was that because you thought um, maybe I should start a, my own firm or start a business? You know, I, I realized while I was, you know, working on projects that I was very intrigued with, you know, the why, the purpose, you know, the, the rationale behind the buildings that I was designing. Um, You know, I was intrigued with, you know, the fact that these buildings that we were designing were primarily office buildings and workplaces. And, you know, how did the the design of these buildings impact these workplaces? Uh, And in my business school application essays, you know, you have to do a whole essay and all of that business. Um, You know, I talked about how I wanted to study the relationship between design and productivity in the workplace. So I, I, you know, went to the Anderson School at UCLA and, uh, you know, I learned how to begin to think in a more holistic way uh, um, about the thing that you're designing. You know, I always feel you can't break the rules unless you really know how something works. Mm. And, you know, with the training that I was having as an MBA in all aspects of business and all aspects of real estate, I started to see where the opportunities were to do things differently. 
Yeah. I love that line about breaking the rules. Um, the, the, I think that's exactly right. You you have to know how things work before you can actually um, be subversive or or radical in some ways. Um, I know that you sort of you you kind of bounced around a, a few different companies and professions for a few years. Um, I mean, were you did were you already at that point on a path towards management, or were you still literally sitting at a a drafting table and, and drawing up designs. So when I graduated with my MBA, I decided to work for a large real estate developer so that I could really get a full understanding of the building creation process, how all of the you know variety of issues come together to create a building. Um, so after you know two or three years in that firm, I went back to design because I realized I wanted to stay on the path of really focusing on the design side of things and the connection between work and workplace and how design matters to the success of something. And, and this ultimately led me to work at Gensler, um, which is the firm that really invented workplace design back in the 60s when, when Gensler was founded. It was one of the first interior design firms uh, for the commercial uh, enterprise. You know, most interior designers worked on homes and, and people who laid out offices were basically, you know, furniture dealers. And, you know, the whole idea of design and architecture really were not fully brought into the corporate headquarters and corporate workplace design. You know, it was definitely the place I wanted to work Mm. um, and to really bring together um, my, you know, experience in design, my new knowledge in, in kind of the holistic sense of business and also my, my understanding of real estate. You um, and I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but I think this it's it's an important point to fast forward to. Um, you were named co CEO of Gensler in 2005. You you were named co CEO. The company named you and Andy Cohen as the co CEOs. You're still co CEOs today, more than f- 15 years later, which means it must be working out okay. But this is kind of an unusual model. Can you can you kind of walk us through the thinking behind that model? Yeah, you know, our firm is very unique. Um, And in 2005, um, you know, our founder turned 75. And he um, decided to, you know, kind of break the mold and appoint co-CEOs. In many ways, it was in recognition of the level of complexity of our firm, the uh, kind of flat organizational structure that we have, and the belief that we had begun to build in the firm what we call the collaborative model of leadership. In uh, about five years before that, we had started uh, a direction of the firm we called Leadership 2000, which really put in place this idea of co-leadership and collaborative leadership in all aspects of the firm and created less of a hierarchy and more of a networked organization with uh, collaborative leadership teams leading practice areas, leading geographic locations, leading areas of expertise. Um, So when it came to, you know, how do we think about the CEO position itself, it in many ways only made sense to model after what was 
already becoming such an incredibly powerful form of leadership that we were seeing across the firm. But more importantly, it's how our model supports the uh, level of innovation and collaboration that is so critical to being a firm that is able to solve unique and you know challenging problems and bring together people in a, a very seamless way. You know, the kinds of technologies that we're all using now as we're in the quarantine. Well, at our firm, we use those technologies every day, even mm. in the office, because we're working with people in offices around the world. You know, I sit on the East Coast and my partner, co-CEO Andy Cohen, sits in Los Angeles. And, you know, we have, you know, key team members who sit in New York and in San Francisco and uh, London and Shanghai. And in that way, you know, it creates an organization that's able to, we think, through diversity, really ignites the kind of innovation that is needed for the kinds of challenges today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So you have, I mean, you have had, since you started as CEO, a completely distributed executive team. Like you, you are all working in different offices. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's like, right, there are very few, <laughs> very few big companies that work that way um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I, I want to dive into that in a sec, but, but when you became the co-CEO, right, and, and Andy was your partner, what was it that you wanted to bring 
to the job? I mean, specifically, like you, you had been an architect, you'd been a junior architect, you'd worked for other people, you probably had experiences you didn't like. What was it that you wanted to, to, to bring to Gensler? You know, I think we all have experiences, good and bad, that uh, help us to to think about, you know, what would we do if, if we were in charge? You yeah. know, what would we do? Sure. Right. And um, some of the things that, that uh, we've done since becoming co-CEOs is to really raise the bar in our investment in talent development, our investment in meetings and bringing people together. Um, so really a people focus, I would say, you know, first of all, and then really the second thing that um, over 10 years ago, we started the Gensler Research Institute with a, a focus on research uh, regarding the workplace and the relationship between productivity and workplace design. And we have continued that research through these last, you know, um, you know, 14 years or so, we created something called uh, the Workplace uh, Performance Index or the WPI. Um, and that is an index that helps uh, employers to understand the, the performance of their workplace design in relation to the work that people are doing, helps to diagnose where there are challenges and where it's working well. And um, just recently, we conducted, because everyone was going into this quarantine, we thought, oh my gosh, here's an opportunity to survey workers across the United States who are working from home. And let's understand, you know, what that's like, what is effective in that experience, what's not effective, do they want to come back and work in the office or not, or what. Um, spoiler here, the, the findings were that, you know, it's about about 12% of people are interested in, in working from home. Mm. And actually, that's not that different from what we had found in surveys prior to the uh, quarantine. Most people still want to want to work in an office. Yes. Most people still want to work in an office, but there were a lot of, of uh, interesting uh, findings around, you know, what what are they looking for now in the office? And you can imagine, you know, of course, uh, more distancing, um, which we think is is probably something that was going to start being talked about more even without the pandemic. Um, you know, office space design will probably become less dense. And so this is kind of accelerating the density conversation as we add to it, health safety. And then also, um, you know, unassigned seating and the fact that people who are in the office want to see assigned seating rather than, you know, this kind of shared environment. But, you know, that people are missing certain pieces of what it means to, to be in an office. Yeah. Um, you know, the kinds of interactions, the serendipity, the, the, the kind of management by walking around where you can kind of just touch base with various people. I was talking to one of the um, leaders of, of one of our groups and he was like, you know, I want, I just walk around in the morning every day usually. And I wanted to start, you know, just reaching out to people on, you know, on the Zoom. And I started doing that and people kind of jumped out of their seats wondering why is the boss calling me? Hmm. He was like, you know, it's hard to do the casual, you know, the, the taking the temperature and, and walking through 
you know, there's a part of it that's that's a you know sort of an X factor that um, I don't think any of, any of us quite understand why it is more unlocked when you're together than not, but um, but it is, and I you know I think people are starting to realize that um, there are some pieces that in if in the long run this were the only state, I think we'd have to figure out how to how to fill those pieces in in new ways. Yeah. So. There are open questions about the future of work. A lot of people must be asking themselves, do I need to live in San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles or Boston or Washington, D.C., where it's more expensive? Can I do my job from Charleston, West Virginia or from you know, Reno, Nevada or from you know, Boise, Idaho? And, and there's an open question as to whether that may happen, whether remote work may actually be – more of a model going forward. Um, you look at a company like J.P. Morgan, right? J.P. Morgan has said, "Look, um, people can work remotely for you know for a long time. They're they're going to allow that for a while, and and it's big. I think they have the most office space in New York City. Um, what does that mean for not specifically for Gensler, but for architects, for architecture firms? I mean, is there a world where you know um, companies?" medium-sized, small, even big companies decide that they don't need a physical headquarters? Well, I think this is going to be one of the most interesting transformations of the workplace that we've seen. Yeah. And, um, you know, we don't know what that future is going to be. What's so fascinating, I find, is that things are moving so fast. It's the narrative is literally changing weekly. Mm. Um, You know, there's uh, uh, discussions now about this idea and it's kind of what you were talking about regarding cities. Um, this idea of the hub and spoke model of office locations uh, where there could be these satellite offices that are more located nearer where people live, mm. um, which could offset the issue that there isn't enough space in you know the main office because you have to de-densify so severely that you know you're creating other places for people to work together, but that are, you know, maybe uh, closer into, you know, neighborhood locations or suburban locations. Um, and we're, we're going to see this play out in probably the next few months. You know, there's this re-entry process that's going to need to happen. You know, most de-densifications now I'm seeing are going to be 50% less capacity or, you know, or less. There are people who are going to want to be in the office but don't want to take public transit. Um, even at home, you know, most people don't have a very satisfactory setup. So if, if that even is a, you know, potential longer term, I think we're going to need to see some things happening in that home environment as well. Um, but uh, on the other side of this are, you know, better workplaces, maybe, you know, touchless technologies that are already starting to be developed, sensors related to what's going on with uh, air quality. Um, there are a number of, of technologies that are actually going to move us along very far in terms of the health safety part of this. Hmm. I, I want to I sort of reach into your approach to leadership and what you've learned and how you've developed it as a leader over the course of your career. First, first of all, what do you think a leader's biggest job is? What is, what is the main role of a leader as far as you're concerned? 
in in the leadership of a large organization, which is the the seat I sit in now, um, you know, in some respects, my view is different than when I was a leader of a group of thirty or even a group of one hundred. Um, right now, and as a leader of you know a firm of six thousand people, wow. Um, Andy and I really focus a great deal on our vision, our purpose, uh, our guiding principles as a firm. You know, the things that give us direction, the things that help us as a community of leaders to make decisions that are in alignment with each other. And, you know, once those things are in place, you can you know, you don't need to micromanage. You don't get involved in trying to make decisions for leaders. You try to support them as they make decisions, as they, you know, bring their creativity and their ideas to the table that open up some amazing opportunities for the firm. Hmm. Um, so I'm curious about going back to the co-leadership model, right? Um, which is actually really smart because no one person can be everything to everyone that they need to be at one time. What is the superpower that you bring and what's the superpower that Andy brings? What are, what are your complementary traits that that you each have? Well, I love how you said that because that is that's how we look at it. You know, it's two plus two equals five. And, you know, it's not trying to be the same person. You have two very different people. It's this idea of, you know, the power of the diversity. Both of us have tons of, you know, alignment and shared values and, and guiding principles. And at the same time, we're very, very different. Andy is, you know, an amazing designer and comes from, you know, really that side of the business. Very inspirational individual, you know, super smart, very connected to clients and the voice of our clients. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, I don't know, I get it's hard to talk about what you think you bring as your yeah. special aces, you know, I guess it's all of that, you know, in many ways, it's also funny, because Andy really grew up in our firm. And, you know, I bounced around into so many different firms and did the MBA thing went off into real estate. Um, I, you know, bring a background from uh, a few other lenses um, and experiences into this um, uh, co-leadership model and, and probably add some of that to the mix. Many companies, right, they reward um, individual achievement, which I, I think is a, a huge problem. And I think it actually damages the culture of a, of a of a workplace because people are essentially pitted against each other. You're you're judged and, and rewarded for your sales figures, right? Everyone is looking at a PL. Smart companies are focusing on collaboration, rewarding collaborative behavior. Or, you know, somebody who figures out how to mentor somebody or helps create a more um, uh, a richer workplace culture. Like the world of architecture has traditionally been a star system, right? Like there's a, you know, as a star architect and they are, they're sent off somewhere around the world to work on some big project. How do you reward and enable collaboration and, and try to minimize internal competition? You know, we really don't believe in the star structure at Gensler. Great ideas can come from anyone in our organization, 
And when you have this kind of star system, you're, you know, you're undervaluing most people because, yeah. Yeah. you know, you just have a couple of stars and their opinion counts and no one else's opinion counts. And, and that's not what we believe in. We believe that everyone needs to be empowered and supported and that, you know, creativity isn't a certain background or a certain education, um, you know, that it's, it comes from everyone. Um, you know, we need today, we need to solve problems that have not been solved before. And we have to be innovative, which means we need everybody's ideas on board. You know, we don't have stars, we have ideas. And we have a very open platform. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, a push and a pull. Um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity and we encourage people to, you know, reach and, and contribute, but we also make sure that we're reaching out to people as well. Do you think that that leadership, I mean, as far as you're concerned, do you think that you were already had leadership skills from the beginning that you thought of yourself as a leader, even when you were uh, a young girl thinking about being an architect? Or do you think that you grew into thinking of, of yourself as a leader? I didn't think of myself as a leader early on. Um, I thought of myself as an architect, but I didn't think of myself as a, a leader as a kid. You know, it's it's interesting when we, you think about what were those moments where you kind of became a leader. Um, and just one story that, that just comes to mind, um, after I uh, worked in real estate, uh, I, I decided, you know, I really wanted to be more on the design side of, of the table um, after, you know, doing real estate for about three years. And I joined a small firm in Los Angeles. Well, every summer, uh, the woman who was the head of that office would take a three-week vacation in France. Hmm. And uh, during one summer, it was the second summer I was there, um, she was on her vacation as normal, not realizing that the CEO of the, the parent company um, was on the verge of a major acquisition of another firm. Um, and this acquisition happened, when, you know, literally that first few days when she, when she had uh, gone on her vacation. Yeah. Of course, you know, he expected her to lead the transition and assimilation of that L.A. practice into our L.A. office. Well, instead of getting on a plane and coming back from vacation, she told me to handle it. Hmm. And I was maybe 30 years old at the time. And, um, you know, I was kind of thrown into this whole thing, hiring, you know, all the people from this other firm one by one, dealing with the receiver because the company we had bought was in bankruptcy proceedings, you know, figuring out the financial status of all the projects that this firm had been doing, learning all of the contracts, moving these people and their, you know, their materials and everything into our offices and uh, meeting with all the irate clients of the firm we had just bought. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, three weeks of no sleep, 16-hour days. and But most importantly, um, I really learned to trust my own instincts. And, you know, through that uh, acquisition, our, our office in Los Angeles doubled in size. Um, and within the following few months, I was made the head of the office. Wow. Yeah. When you, um, when you, and I'm sure you're asked for advice. Um, what, what, what 
advice do you give to particularly the young women who are um, who are starting out in their careers? I mean, it's it's probably the same advice that I would give to to anyone, and it's it's to you know be your best every day. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because I, I think there was a turning point for me that you know when when difficult projects or difficult assignments come your way to not just get it done, but to focus on mastery. Hmm. I feel that that's where there was a big, uh, you know, significant kind of move forward for myself that, you know, not just doing enough to get by on with an assignment, whether it was detailing a difficult component of a, a building or, you know, creating a model, which, you know, can sometimes be very tricky, um, or, you know, drawing a parking lot or something, um, you know, to find a way to excel at the difficult task and, you know, to, to really feel proud of the piece of work that you've done. Once I started doing that, my career really took off. And, I, you know, it's this point of doing the thing in front of you really well. Um, people who've worked with me know it's kind of like everything from, you know, the letter to the way the presentation might be done to the, you know, every little thing uh, for me needs a certain level of excellence around it. Hmm. Um, and I believe you make that a life habit with your work and it takes you to a, a place where, you know, your career will definitely grow. That's Diane Hoskins, co-CEO of Gensler. By the way, if you think that remote work is the future of work, think again. That survey Gensler released this year doesn't only show that fewer than 15% of workers want to work from home, but that a significantly higher percentage of millennials and Gen Zers feel less productive and more stressed working from home than their Gen X and baby boomer counterparts. You can find that entire study by visiting Gensler.com. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.